may be dismissed at Children's Church. And <clears throat> good singing this morning and some good songs too. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we uh, began a new series, which we'll, we'll be in for uh, just uh, about two months, I think. And the first two messages were really heavy laden with uh, scripture references. In fact, there were so many Bible passages that Pastor Jeremy had in his message, and then that I had last week in, in uh, teaching on the bride and body of Christ that we didn't have time to really go into depth in any of them. We were kind of looking at the breadth of them. This, uh, this week uh, will be a lot different in that um, we're not going to look at a lot of Bible verses, but base some things upon our understanding of what the, the Bible says about things like, like biblical love and what we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. In fact, uh, this is going to be a much different sermon than, than I think I've ever given and that it's uh, not only topical, but um, uh, really almost philosophical in, in its train. But it's, it's designed to set up what's coming in the series, and uh, especially what Pastor Jeremy will be doing next week as he takes the, uh, the positive side of what I'm doing this week. Mine is on the idolatry of love. His is something more positive. Um, we're going to be using, for the next six weeks uh, uh, in addition to the word of God the Bible which is the only true inerrant book ever written because it's from God we're also going to be using a, a helpful book that uh, I think I told you it a couple weeks ago this is one of the books that the elders spent uh, a couple of days studying through it's called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love uh, a strange title but it makes sense once you get into it and um, the points I'm going to present to you today that you see in your outline, those, uh, those seven points, are taken directly from this book. He, these are his, uh, his main points of thought that, that he develops through the chapter. And what I'm going to try to do is, as faithfully as I can, um, represent his, his thought and, and keep it in a biblical context as well. Hopefully it will make sense when we get to the end. So, I've read through um, more than 30 years in pastoral ministry many books on church life and ministry. And I've never read a book like this. Because all the other books are, there are many very good books on the ministry of the church, the mission of the, the church, the commission, the, the organization of the church, the body life of the church, all those kinds of things which are good and helpful in their own right. But this book begins with the love of God. And that's where it ends. And every chapter in between is solidly based on the love of God and how that ought to impact us as a church. So it's not just the mechanics of how things happen, it's the heart behind it that is important. And I think that's what we'll see. If you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. I want you to notice what Paul lists here as the, the dangers that are coming that will be prevalent in the last times. Look at the very first one. For men will be lovers of themselves. For men will be lovers of themselves. Look how, how many times he talks about the love of man. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And what I'm going to present to you today is the idea that we... Uh, we have turned love into an idol. We are becoming more and more lovers of selves. And I don't mean this to be a particular indictment of anyone here in particular. I, I mean this in, of us as a culture. And even in a Christian church culture, we, ha we have some of this element that has infected us. Um, you see the main question? This is how he begins the chapter. How do our common cultural conceptions of love hinder our acceptance of church membership and discipline? So here's a connection between love and church membership and discipline. The question we want to deal with today is how do our common cultural conceptions of love hinder our acceptance of church membership and discipline? And, and I'm going to do a change up on you in that I'm going to go jump to the conclusion. So if you want to look at the back of your notes... That doesn't mean the message is over. <laughs> Just means I've reordered the presentation. Okay. So we see the main question we just looked at. The main answer is we have made love into an idol that serves, uh, serves us. And we have therefore redefined love into something that never imposes judgments, conditions, or binding agreements. Okay, now we'll go back to the beginning. first point is that doing a study of the church, which is what we're doing, requires us to consider our cultural baggage. Our, our church life is located in the midst of our culture. It's always been that way, and it is that way around the world. And there was a church in 16th century England that had a particular culture. There's a church in 21st century Japan that has a different culture from ours. Uh, churches in South America and Africa and, and all over the world have different cultures, but they're located in a culture. And whatever culture we're in informs and influences us, to some degree at least. So you and I have come here today with certain notions and views and ideas of what to expect, of what church should be and do. Well, where did we get those ideas? 
Well, hopefully from the word, but we also have gotten them from the world. Whether we like it or not, the, the culture in which we live does affect us, and, and the view of love in this culture affects how we see love, and even what we bring into the church with us as far as our expectations from one another. The second point is that individualism has left us detached, which in turn sent us searching for a love that makes us feel complete. And then, as a result, we want churches to do the same. Certainly, individualism is a cherished ideal in our culture. The strong, self-reliant, resilient individual heroes have shaped our lives. From John Wayne to Rocky Balboa to Jason Bourne, we hail heroes as those individuals who stand on their own who stand above the rest and who stand apart from the rest. It's that last part, that stand apart from the rest, that, that leads individualism to be reluctant to throw in its lot with others. Every attachment in life becomes negotiable. We are all free agents and and every life relationship is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled, including work, marriage, friends, church, political affiliation, clubs, all are renegotiable to get me the best possible advantage, to maximize my life and my liberty and my pursuit of happiness. I have sadly seen this over and over again in counseling situations where people want out of some kind of a relationship, some kind of a contract because it's no longer producing the happiness they thought it would bring. In these situations, the individual remains or retains the veto power over everything. And this view of life spills over into one's view of church life and commitment. What is exactly our obligation and commitment to a local body of believers? And how does real love have to do with that? We embrace in our, our culture romantic love, which is not the same as biblical love. Biblical love is a commitment to the welfare of the other person, even at great personal cost. It's a commitment to see someone else blessed, bettered by my life, by my ministry, by my touching them, even if it costs me greatly to do so. That's what God does for us, right? God so loved us, he gave his son. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, romantic love is not unbiblical. It's just not the same as godly love. We see some instances of romantic love in the Bible, like in the Song of Solomon. Um, 
So it's not that romantic love is unbiblical, but it's not, it's not the same as, and we shouldn't confuse the two. Romantic love is born out of an individual's desire for expression and fulfillment. The problem with romantic love is that it can all too easily turn to become about me instead of the other person. A person says in their heart, I know you love me when you fulfill me, when you let me be myself, when you let me express myself. You show your love, you show you love me when you accept me, affirm me. You show you love me when you make me feel good about myself. The better you make me feel about myself, the more I know you love me. Notice that the central concern and the highest goal in that kind of a statement is me. I have become the true object of my affection. I may claim to love you, but it's really the way that you make me feel that I love. And the more you make me feel good, the more I love that and try to affirm you in that. As John Piper says, we call it love when people make much of us. You make me feel accepted, smart, inspired, romantic, tingly, encouraged, special, warm and fuzzy all over. And I like that. And so we pursue romantic love and it becomes an idol. It's an idol of our heart. And maybe in our life and experience that idol that we have set up, our idealization of what love should be as far as ministering to me, that that idol has been knocked off the shelf by someone, smashed on the floor, and our heart has been broken, our idol smashed, and we, we carefully pick up the pieces and we, we start putting it back together, carefully reestablish this idol of our love, what we want it to be, and set it on our shelf, and then someone else comes along and, and we wonder, should we, we give them the care of our idol of love into their hands? Be, be careful with this. Don't, don't break it, don't drop it. It's important to me. And we soon develop this idol of love in our lives. It becomes more about us than about the other person. Well, what does this have to do with churches? Well, Americans tend to describe churches as loving when those churches make us feel relaxed and comfortable and not judged. We can be ourselves there. A church is loving if I feel connected, if I feel good about the experience, if I feel important there, if the service strokes my ego and lifts my spirit, if I can go away charged and fulfilled and blessed, then that's a loving church. Now, don't get me wrong, I do hope you will go away fulfilled and blessed. But that's not the highest goal. That, that's not the best good. That's not the primary reason for why we are here. 
you have a believing friend at school or work that attends another church, ask if they consider their church to be a good church, a loving church. And if they say yes, ask them why. Why do you say that? And see if their answer doesn't doesn't tell you something about them. Because I feel accepted, because I feel encouraged, because I feel loved, because I feel, think about it. That's the answer you'll get. That's our view of church has become, how does this help me retain my idol of love? I want to read you a a short uh, portion from um, chapter one. This is from, by the way, Jonathan Lehman is the the author. So if I refer to Lehman, you know it's, it's this book. He says, uh, what underlying cultural assumptions in the West today keep Christians from taking church membership seriously? Think about this, a good question. Why does the very idea of church membership and discipline have the faint aroma of unloving to our contemporary sensibilities? Even the idea of Membership and discipline in a church kind of has a faint aroma of something's not right. We don't quite like that. It's, you know, we'd kind of back away from that. Why is that? Because we have learned in the democratic, capitalistic West that we are free agents and that the purpose of life is the maximization of individual happiness. Local churches, therefore, are simply one more group vying for our personal allegiance, like political parties, lovers, or grocery stores. And as with political parties, lovers, and grocery stores, we have learned to negotiate and renegotiate our attachment to local churches according to how closely they align to our sense of self and its values. In order to legitimate these contract renegotiations, we have redefined love to accord with this sense of connectedness to another who complements and affirms our sense of self and its values. Along with individualism comes uh, number three, consumerism. Consumerism has caused us to focus on the desirability of the object of our love rather than on the process of loving. And as a result, we view churches like products which satisfy us or not. We are consumers. And as savvy consumers, we prize ourselves in, uh, in making wise purchases getting great deals, maybe even getting it over on someone in a deal. We haggle over prices, we search for the best deals, and then go out and conquer. But as soon as the deal is closed, something better comes along. That's true especially with computers. This last year, six months or so ago, I, I bought my first PC. A laptop. I was so glad. I searched and researched and I got the best deal I could. One week later, 
the same manufacturer came out with a new model. Someone I know bought for $100 less than I paid. <laughs> I just can't win. <laughs> but it's like that in our consumer mindset. We want this best deal, and then when we get it, something better comes along, and then we look at what we have, we're dissatisfied. Or maybe we're not satisfied after we make the purchase and we bring it back for an exchange. We want something else. And all of life soon becomes like a, a big exchange, always trying to attain something better, something more fulfilling, getting a bigger bang for the buck in all of life. And consumerism directly bears on our view of love. Uh, Jonathan Lehman uh, is quoting here from uh, uh, philosopher and sociologist Eric Fromm, who observed that uh, Western co conceptions of love had, in fact, taken a consumeristic turn. Consider how the typical dating process works. A man evaluates his own purchasing power based on what he perceives is valued by women personality, humor, stature, future prospects, and so forth. Based on this self-appraisal, he makes the best purchase he can according to whichever traits he most values in women, such as intelligence, beauty, or family background. In a market with ample supply, he can be more particular in his demands. It's not just beauty he's looking for, it's a brunette with such and such stature. In all of this, Fromm observed that people had shifted their focus from the faculty of love to the objects of love. We're more concerned about who loves us than we are about loving. He writes, two persons thus fall in love when they feel they have found the best object available on the market considering the limitations of their own exchange values. So we do a self-assessment. I think with the package as it is, I could get this kind of a person. So here's my target area. I know I probably can't get this good of a person, but I can certainly do better than this. So that's my target area. It, by the way, this package used to be okay. <laughs> it is a greatly deteriorated version. But we tend to view love and relationships that way. What's, what's the best exchange I can get? How can, I, how can I maximize my purchase? How can I do the best for me? When we view churches through our lens of consumer-oriented love, Lehman says, it is not coincidental that the loving church believes that size and performance matters. The best way to love and reach the world is with a better product line. Larger churches have the resources requisite for this type of thing. Smaller churches don't, so smaller churches fade. What is the attraction to the larger churches? And part of it is what it's going to do for me. 
When people go shopping for a church, this problem of focusing on the object of love instead of the process of loving imposes itself. The, the variety of ministries offered by that church, the, the desired times and services and facilities, all are considered in closing the deal. The discerning consumer of church ministries looks for a church that offers their style of music and their brand of coffee. By the way, we only serve Folgers, 100% Colombian. <laughs> In surveys I've seen of why people chose the church they attend, and I've read several of them through the years, um, the question of how can I serve this church body never even made the list of what people considered. In a leadership magazine, a leadership is put out by Christianity Today, designed for church leaders, I was... Uh, highly disappointed to read in uh, the last survey I read in leadership that why people chose the church they went to, that preaching was fifth on the list. Number five. I thought, what's more important than that? That's what I do. That's gotta be, that's gotta be up there. You know? <laughs> Can you guess what was number one? Well, let me tell you. I, I was a little bit surprised at this too, but number one was, number one consideration, children's ministry. Number two, youth ministry. By the way, these were probably suburban type churches given the, the flavor of the article and everything. Number three was the nursery. Whether they, so the, these are evidently mostly families with children who have, those are their concerns. So it's a children's ministry, youth ministries, nursery, music before preaching. Okay, so we have number four is music. Number five is preaching. So Jeremy, what you are doing is more important than... Of course, you're going <laughs> to... That's... So five is preaching. No... Number six is facilities. Number seven, doctrine. Doctrine was one of the lowest things on the list. What struck me as funny is that even preaching was higher than that. So as long as the preacher uh, was a good entertainer, that was good. It didn't matter so much that he was saying biblical truth. That's how he said it. But that's the consumerism mentality that enters into even Christianity, even church life of how, how do we think about choosing a church? Where should we be committed to and why? Number four, commitment phobia takes commitment out of love. Love then becomes about what's advantageous for me. And the idea of commitment is removed from our view of churches. Well, certainly, lack of commitment is a hallmark of our culture. 
and it's getting worse and we see it in every area of our lives and relationships and uh, commitment of work of employers to employees and employees to employers I mean that's, that's pretty much gone out the window um, uh, commitment to, uh, to organizations uh, like uh, Boy Scouts and so forth has drastically dropped commitment to local churches as far as going to a place and saying I'm going to be a part of this body even if things go bad I'm going to be part of the solution commitment to families marriage relationships we have a, a lack of commitment a fear of commitment commitments are held only as long as it is advantageous to do so of course, biblical love is all about commitment. And so that is certainly wrong-headed. Number five, skepticism. Uh, Lehman says that skepticism removes all judgment from love, causing us to expect unconditional acceptance from churches. Well, what he means by skepticism here is the idea that people are skeptical of absolute truth. When, when someone says, uh, we have the truth and here's the here are the boundaries, people become skeptical about that. And, and so the backlash has been to, to erase boundaries, to not say we have truth and there, that there are boundaries, to try to be more inclusive love becomes unconditional acceptance if you don't accept me and everything about me the way I am then it's your problem because you are being unloving and that's how the, the thinking goes churches are evaluated they're evaluated by how and if and where they draw boundaries and every church draws boundaries somewhere. Uh, you're not likely going to find uh, churches who, are, who have the, uh, the head of the local satanic lodge uh, serving on their board. They, they're going to draw boundaries somewhere. It's just where do we draw the boundaries and why and who's in and who's out based on what? And what does it mean to be a Christian? There's an in and an out on that. Right? You either are, are or you're not. It's not everything goes. So, but skepticism tends to remove all discernment and judgment, and, and we want just un unconditional acceptance. Pragmatism also results because when, when truth is swept aside, the invariable result for measuring success is pragmatism that is just asking does it work you no longer have to be concerned about is it right just does it work number six <clears throat> but what is such individualism really that is if you take individualism and you, and you press it towards its extreme what, what do you really find when you uncover individualism in our hearts what is there is a hatred of authority you see individualism 
runs smack into the wall of authority. When an individual says, I want to do whatever I want and go wherever I want, and it just moves somewhere, it's going to find resistance. There's going to be a wall of authority. Uh, The government, the police, uh, your parents, teachers, your boss, your wife, somewhere you're going to run into a wall of resistance. And we don't like that. Our own selfish, sinful desires will not long tolerate being restricted. People crave to be autonomous. It's what a true individual is. Autonomous, which is a fine Greek word from auto means self, namos, law. We want to be a law to ourself. No one else can tell us what to do. We want to be our own law. Behind this hatred of authority, Lehman writes, is a diminished God. Oh, one more passage from him. <clears throat> He's talking here about the, you would think that the, the answer to individualism would be community. What we need to have is just more community. And uh, certainly a lot of churches have gone that route. And in community, there's a lot of good things. We seek to minister to one another and so forth. But he says there's a flaw in that thinking. It's, it's a right step, but it's not enough. And he says, I'm lingering on this point because so much secular and Christian literature attempts to address individualism, individualism by giving three cheers for its opposite, community. The language and literature about individualism can help us to see and describe some of the symptoms of the problem. People are reluctant to make commitments to others and to be held accountable. People dismiss any sort of boundaries beyond their own preferences and foolishly think they can define themselves in a good and right way outside their connections to other people. But when we treat individualism as the root problem, we have prepared the way for for what I believe is if not a misdiagnosis, at least an insufficient diagnosis, because our analysis either excludes God or involves only a greatly diminished God. Here's one example of an insufficient diagnosis. One academic writes, my contention is that the distinctive failures of our era derive from its failures of due relatedness to God. Our problem, he says, are a matter of due relatedness. Well, that's sort of right. But is this how the Apostle Paul or Prophet Jeremiah put it? Thus says the Lord, I have observed a failure of due relatedness, O Israel. In one sense, yes, Israel failed to relate to God, but but it's how they failed to relate to Him that counts. They failed to obey Him. They failed to listen to His commands. God is interested in a relationship with human beings, but he's interested in a relationship that's structured in a particular way. He's interested in an authoritatively asymmetrical relationship. That is, he's the king to be worshipped, and we are not. When we pull off the somewhat secularized mask of individualism, 
what we find behind it is a fear of, nay, a hatred of authority. It's not relationships that people are afraid of. People long for relationships, as the entire romantic movement attests to. Rather, it's a particular kind of relationship that people despise. The real problem, then, is not finally individualism. It's anti-authorityism. Loneliness is not the problem. A refusal to live life on anyone else's terms is. So we find that in our human relationships, not wanting to submit to one another, but we find it uh, worst of all in our relationship with God and not being uh, voluntarily under his authority. And that results with a very diminished view of God. We bring him down to our level. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about that first phrase, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death not just because it results in a lack of relationship with God who is the source of all life, but the wages of sin is death because sin is rebellion against his glorious, beautiful, holy, resplendent majesty. The wages of sin is death because God's glory is weighty and infinite and we have fallen short of it. The, the wages of sin is death because God is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and we have brushed him off. We have a diminished God. Lehman writes, what individualistic humans need are not just relationships, even relationships of mutual love and concern, Rather, humans need relationships that move them toward the worship and honor and prizing of God and his glory. The Bible's call to obedience and submission before God's authority is rooted in his glory and majesty. The despising of authority, therefore, is finally a despising of his glory. In other words, identifying the real problem as anti-authorityism doesn't even push us far enough the real problem, finally, is a hatred of God's majesty and worth. He concludes that church membership then begins with repentance. When we think about our idol of love and how we have loved ourselves and seek for our own the problem is not just that we do that in, uh, without connecting with other people the way we should, but that we have not submitted to God in the way that we should, the God who, who is love and a despising of the authority, that is anyone else telling me what to do, in the long run is a despising of God because there is no authority except as comes from God, Romans 13 says. And our need 
to begin this idea of church membership and what does it mean to belong to a church and relate to others, we begin with repentance. That we have not highly enough esteemed our great God. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us love. You have given us the, the capacity of love, the faculty of, of love. And we have turned it into something that, that serves ourselves. We have set it up as an idol of our heart. And we carefully guard and protect it and don't want anyone to mess with it. And love, we have not, and, and Lord, we have not given it over to you. You are our highest authority, our greatest good. You are our God. And Lord, we repent before you for having made love into something you never intended it to be and for not loving you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength or loving others that way either. Lord, forgive us. Give us renewed hearts and minds for you and for what real love is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, ask the... Uh